Our New Testament lesson today is the lectionary passage for this very exciting week 19 in Ordinary Time Year B. It's the tw- it begins with the 25th chapter of the four- the 25th verse of the fourth chapter and concludes with the second verse of the fifth chapter. Listen to God's word to the ancient church in Ephesus and for us today. So then, putting away all falsehood, let us all speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are all members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor with their own hands, so that they have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come from your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us. Let us pray. Come, O God, in power and in might. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, who is our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Words have power. Words have power. Spoken words, written words, whispered words, shouted words, words have power. Now I'm convinced that I can stand up here and I can say a few words, not a story or a joke, just a few out of context words and you might laugh. Just a word or some words. I could say a few words and you might feel awkward or angry or mad. I could even say a few words and you would instantly be filled with excitement. Do you believe this claim? Do you believe this claim? I know that we are an empirical people. We live in a world of perpetual distrust thanks to the work of the early empiricists like Sir Francis Bacon, and John Locke, and David Hume. We like proof. We need it. I can't just stand up here and make a claim without proving it. Can I? Of course, I can't. But, have no fear. I'm prepared to prove my claim with an experiment. This experiment will consist of me saying two words. Just two words. And all of you are going to be instantly Filled with excitement. It sounds like a good deal. Okay, are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. Pizza 
party. <laughs> pizza party. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I said it. Pizza party. Are there any two words in the English language that so beautifully complement one another as pizza and party? Andy, would you like to go to a party? Of course I would. I love parties. Well, this is a pizza party. Well, what's that? It's where you go and you have a party and you eat pizza. Oh my gosh, that, is, that sounds like the best reason to gather for a party. <laughs> pizza parties are very exciting. So I'd like to tell you a story, it's a tragedy really, about a time when I, along with my peers, were offered a pizza party. I was in fifth grade, and my teacher was going to have a surgery that would keep her at home for two weeks. So the fifth grade class at Stanfield Elementary School was going to have a substitute teacher for two weeks. Now, if any of you are educators, you know that this is a recipe for disaster. So the day before the surgery, our teacher came to us with a bargain, as if she were bargaining with the devil. She said, look, you naughty, mischievous fifth graders, you need to be good. And if you're good, if I get a good report from you when I get back from the substitute teacher, I will throw, you guessed it, a class pizza party. Now, folks, words have power. <laughs> and to the 10-year-old ear, her words were the equivalent of adrenaline straight to the bloodstream. They were the equivalent of a catnip salad to an alley cat. They were the equivalent of a Chips Ahoy cookie truck spill for the cookie monster. Our excitement was unprecedented. A pizza party for us. And mind you, I grew up in the boondocks of rural North Carolina. There wasn't a pizza restaurant within 20 miles of Stanfield Elementary School. A rare treat, a pizza party for us. And all we had to do was be good. Well, I told you this is a tragedy. <laughs> and as it happened, our fifth grade class received a particular substitute teacher who wasn't a big fan of our fifth grade class. And we weren't the biggest fan of her either. So, not long after she arrived, one of the ringleaders of the organized mischief ring of the fifth grade displayed a signal. A signal for an all-out annoyance blitz on this substitute teacher. I'm going to try to do it. It's going to be hard to see because I have these floppy sleeves on. But it, it went like this. Okay? Now, this isn't a universal symbol. This isn't like the, the bicycle symbol. Okay? But we knew what it meant. That symbol meant sink the sub. <laughs> sink the sub. You know what sink the sub means? Sink the sub is when a bunch of naughty, mischievous, depraved fifth graders annoy a substitute teacher simply to get on her nerves for no other reason than to be annoying. And being annoying was our art. And we were masters <laughs> of our craft. And our most beloved method of sinking the sub was this. When the teacher would turn to write on the blackboard, 
we would get up and we would switch seats. <laughs> that way when she turned around and looked, we would be in different seats and she wouldn't know our names. And apparently, this was very annoying for substitute teachers. So annoying, in fact, that we got a bad report. We got a bad report, and consequently, we didn't get that pizza party of our dreams. Now, this is a first world, fifth grade tragedy. How did it happen? How did it happen? All we had to do was be good. And we would have gotten the pizza party of our dreams. But we decided to sink the sub instead. Now we remembered that we were supposed to be good. We remembered that we were supposed to be good to get that pizza party. You better believe we remembered. That's all we were thinking about was that pizza party. We remembered. But when we sank the sub, we forgot. We forgot. You see, if you do something that you remember you ought not do, then you've forgotten. <laughs> you can remember all day long that that swirly red burner on the stove is hot, but as soon as you touch it, you've forgotten what you're supposed to remember. And you can remember until the cows come home that if you lick something that's frozen, that your tongue will stick to it. But about the time you lick that frozen pole, because you've been triple dog dared, and we know that that's the most serious of all the dares, and you lick that pole, then you've forgotten what you're supposed to remember. And you can remember all day that all people are created and loved by the same God who created and who loves you. But about the time you yell at that barista at Starbucks because they accidentally put whipped cream on your venti, mocha chip frappuccino and you're trying to watch your waistline because it's swimsuit season, you have forgotten what you're supposed to remember. Folks, we're good at remembering things. But in our lives, we encounter moments that necessitate that we act on what we remember. These moments necessitate that our actions reflect that we remember. My fifth grade class remembered that we were supposed to be good. But when we sank the sub, we forgot. In our scripture lesson today, we encounter a congregation who remembers that they're Christian. But they've forgotten what that means. This group of people have forgotten that being a Christian means being one who imitates Christ. Our scripture lesson is situated within a letter to a new and apparently inexperienced congregation in Ephesus, which was likely in Asia Minor. And this audience, this congregation, was likely a congregation of recently converted Artemis cult members. These are Gentiles. These are pagans. So upon their conversion, they received the gift of hope. The hope of bridging the gap between the creation and the one that created. The evangelist must have instructed them that there was hope for them in the gospel of Jesus Christ and also how to embody this hope is they were to live not as individuals but as a community unified 
to become the body of Christ. As Christians, they were supposed to act differently. They were supposed to imitate the one who gave them hope. The Ephesians remembered that they had received hope. They remembered, and we know they remembered, because they were still worshiping. They remembered that they had received hope in Christ, but they had forgotten what it means to accept hope in the gospel, as their behavior didn't reflect the hope of a new life in Christ. What does such a new life look like? In verses 31 and 32 of the fourth chapter, the author presents a dichotomy between the characteristics of the old life and the new life. We find the habits of the old life include shouting, and slander, and anger, and greed, and malice. These actions destroy community. These actions have no place in a new life in Christ. These actions do not allow us to imitate Christ. Instead, the author notes that we should speak the truth, forgive one another, be tender-hearted, be kind, be generous. These actions don't destroy community. They edify. And also, our life in Christ must reflect the work of Christ. Christ didn't destroy. Christ edified. So, no more greed, no more thievery, no more slander, no more actions that destroy community. This is the new life. And it seemed that the Ephesian church had forgotten their baptisms when moments arose in their lives and they needed to reflect the hope of the gospel to people that they met along the way. They were called to speak the truth. Well, they forgot. They lied. They were called to be kind. Well, they forgot. They, they were malicious. They were called to share what they had. Well, they forgot. They were greedy. The author urges them to remember their baptism and actively embrace the life, the new life, that comes from being claimed by God in baptism. Now, we remember that we are called by God to proclaim the gospel in the world. We're reminded of that when we come to this place, when we sit in these pews where people have sat long before us, and God willing will sit long after we're gone. When we sing hymns, when we confess our sins and are reminded that we have forgiveness, when we hear the word read and proclaimed, when we pray, we are reminded of hope. It's easy to remember in this place with so many reminders. All we have to do is look to the front of the sanctuary at that font, and we're reminded that we're all born in the same family in the waters of baptism. It's easy to remember in this place. But we're called not only to remember, but to not forget when we're outside of these walls. So what does not forgetting look like? What does it look like to truly embody the new life? What does it look like to truly imitate Christ? It looks like forgiving one another. It looks like being kind. It looks like being compassionate. It looks like being truthful 
to every person that you meet along the way because you remember that that person was created and is called by the same God who created and called you. And you, do, and you don't forget that by treating that person badly. These aren't Christian merit badges. These aren't lofty goals. These actions are the manifestation of the new life. They're the manifestation of truly imitating Christ. When moments appear to us, and we have to remember this, we have to remember this hope. God calls us not to forget, as the Ephesians did. Because if all we do is remember that we have hope in the gospel, and it's only for us, and it's only for us, and our actions don't reflect that hope to others that we meet along the way, then we are failing to fulfill our most important vocation as Christians. And that is to proclaim the good news, to witness the gospel of Jesus Christ, to evangelize. Now, evangelism isn't, you know, beating somebody with the Bible. It's not calling somebody a bad name because they don't believe the same things that we believe. It's not drawing lines in the sand. That's not evangelism. That's cruelty. And this scene isn't evangelism either. Well, well, Ted, what did you do last Sunday? Well, um, you know, I slept late. Um, I, I got up slow. I, I had lunch. I walked the dog. And, uh, and I came back and I watched football. It was a good day. Well, well, Ted, I think that your life is empty. I think that you have a void in your life, Ted, and you're trying to fill it with all sorts of things, with football and with dogs and with hot pockets, and you need Jesus. Please come with me to church. That's not evangelism. That's annoying. That's that's annoying is what that is. Evangelism is being able to reflect the hope of the gospel to people in moments when they desperately need it because the dark clouds in their lives have made it impossible for them to see light. Evangelism is both remembering the gift of hope that you've been given and not forgetting it as we imitate Christ when our lives intersect people whose lives are consumed by fear, by anger, by anxiety, and by hurt. Evangelism is being able to remember and to embody the hope that there is light behind all the dark clouds in our lives. And are, are there dark clouds in our lives? Oh, you betcha. You would better believe there are. With shootings in Colorado, when people can't even assume safety when they go to the movies. With shootings in Wisconsin, when a community of faith can't assume safety when they gather for worship, with our economy, with homelessness and food insecurity in our city, with disease and sickness in our congregation. Are there dark clouds in our lives? Oh, you betcha. You better believe there are. And when our lives intersect the lives of people who are in the midst of these dark clouds, we must both remember and not forget to embody and reflect the hope of the gospel so that we can be a reminder to others that there is hope, so we can remind others. To do this, we can't add to the darkness. We can't add to the darkness with lying 
and slander or greed or any action that destroys rather than edifies. To do this, we must both remember that there is hope and reflect that hope through our actions as people who seek to imitate Christ. In these moments, we must remember not to forget so that Christ's light can shine in the darkness. May this be so. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, in you we find hope. Help us to remember that hope. Help us to embody that hope. And when we are called to be reminders, help us through our actions to reflect the hope that we've been given. We pray this in the name of the one who gave us hope, Jesus Christ. Amen.